Father, it is just a pleasure and a, a great privilege and blessing to be able to call you Father. In the bottom of our hearts, we thank you for an eternity past choosing us to be your children because you desire a family. We are all here only because of your hand in our lives. And we're here to worship you this morning. And we pray that you would open our eyes through your spirit, that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, removing me from the equation, that it may be not about me, but about you this morning. Amen. And as the disciples pray, so we pray, Lord, teach us to pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's take a seat if you would this morning. So far in our sermon series, in prayer we've learned that uh, we're not to put ourselves, God's children, we don't put ourselves on display when we pray like the Pharisees did. That there is no reward for praying that way. The reward being seen by men is just that, the reward. It's already been received. You know, we pray differently than the way of the world. We don't pray with a mindless, meaningless repetition as if we have to badger some distant God to give us what we want. Instead, our Lord say, says to just go to your Father in secret with the full assurance that he already knows what you need and that he will reward you. Now, the point of his instruction on praying is this, that, again, we pray to simply commune with God. This is what fellowship is. When you pray, you should fellowship with God. It's an interaction between a living God. This was Elijah's experience. Remember that? He stands before his living God. God to him was a living, true reality. I like to think of it as this, that our loving Heavenly Father is waiting for us to enter into his presence. And we do that when we pray. And he's waiting for us because he's a loving Heavenly Father. He is different from earthly fathers. I saw this video the other day and I forwarded it to my family. I'm going to read it to you. I think it's hilarious. Um, and it's a picture of what God is not. Okay? It's funny though. It's a picture of this, and I see myself in this picture. I, I coached my sons, Mark and David, in, in baseball and football. And here is this, this coach of this kid, probably what, second, third, fourth grade, maybe? And he's a baseball coach, and this is what he says to them, and this is all on, on, on video. There's two types of people in this world. Now, again, picture in mind here's this coach, and there's about nine to 11 kids around third, fourth grade. There's two types of people in this world. There's winners and there's losers. Just so that we're clear, every time that we step on this field, our goal is to be a winner. And if your dad says, oh, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, just as long as you have fun, well, I hate to say it, 
your dad's a loser. I thought, I wish I would have said that to those kids when I was coaching them all those years because I was in the, the thick of, well, everyone gets a trophy. It's a participation trophy, and we've gotten rid of winners and losers. That's just not how life operates. But if your dad says that, your dad's a loser. Well, we can safely say that our Heavenly Father, he is not a loser. He understands that there are winners and there are losers, and he wants you to have fun. But in competition, there's either a winner or a loser. And I want to begin this morning by talking about what I call the perfect picture. This is a passage that we'll be looking at. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. That's it. We'll get through that this morning. But turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 15. Luke 15. I'm going to wait for Gage to get out his Bible. Luke 15. Gage, you can read this this morning, or this afternoon, this passage, when you're lying on your new couch, okay? (laughs) Okay. Verses 11 to 32. This is the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I find this passage, and we're going to read this whole parable, a perfect picture of a loving father. Thus, it's a perfect picture of our loving Heavenly Father. Let's read this passage, starting in verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. I like that, by the way. No one was giving anything to him. I'm not big into welfare. (laughs) But no one was giving anything to him. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of the father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fat fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. Yet you have never given me a young goat so I might celebrate with my friend. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and that all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Now, this is a story of what? What's it called? prodigal son. Is it a story really about the son? It is not. It is not. It's a story about two sons and a loving father. It's about a loving father who could forgive a son who left home and was unrighteous and who could forgive a son who stayed home and was self-righteous. The father forgave them both. The loving father offered them both all that he possessed. And that's really the, the point of the story when you study this. God is the father who cares for his sons, whether they be religious or irreligious, whether they be moral or immoral, whether they be self-righteous or unrighteous. The focus is about the love of the Father. This type of heavenly Father is who awaits us when we approach him in prayer. And I want you to find these as very comforting words from our Lord's and as an encouragement to pray. So let's take a closer look at this first petition in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. The verse we just looked at our Father who is in heaven. And of course, you may recall some of this. We went over this about a year ago. But let's talk about what we call the paternity of prayer. Turn it back to Matthew chapter 6. I believe it's verse 9. It says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Pray then like this, or pray then this way. That statement right there, it's in a, the Greek language, it's a command because it's an imperative. It's also in the present tense. Now, what does the present tense mean? I've been here for almost five years. I keep going over this over and over and over again. What does the present tense mean in the Greek? How about just plain English grammar? What does the present tense mean? Anybody? What? Now, okay, what else? You said, thank you. She has to stop getting all the answers. You guys got to get this. It is continuous, okay? Present tense is always continuous. Do not get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Remember the word be filled is in the continuous tense, meaning you are to continually be filled, okay? This is why you need to study the Word of God. So it, he's saying here, when he says pray then like this or pray then in this way, it's a continuous 
action, okay? It's a continuous religious practice. Prayer is not to be an occasional religious practice, but really what he means here, when it's in the present tense, prayer is to simply be a way of life. For the believer, it is to be as natural as breathing, If it's a way of life, it should be as natural as breathing. So when the Apostle Paul commands us to, obviously last week, pray without, where did the idea come from? Right here. Right here. Paul is simply reinforcing the teachings of Jesus. This is why when you read you know, people like George Mueller, a great man of prayer, he was asked how much time he spent in prayer, and his reply was, I live in the spirit of prayer. And I love that answer. I pray as I work, when I lie down, and when I rise. And the answers are always coming. Prayer for him was simply a way of life. See, he doesn't separate the secular and the religious. It's all one. Does that make sense? It's just to be as natural as breathing. Now he says, praising like this, and he uses the word are, O-U-R. And I don't want you to skip over this word. God is the father of all creation. But he is not the father of all in relation. You understand that? He's the father of us all. He creates all. But he only has a relationship with his children. So the right to call him father in a relationship is reserved for who? His children, exactly. So what does that make prayer then? Special. What else? A what? Personal, yep. What else? A privilege. It was never meant to be a religious duty. Does that make sense? If you get that, then you look forward to organized times of prayer like we do in the morning. Those that don't show up don't get it. You're not coming because I'm asking you to. That's another opportunity for you to spend time with your loving Heavenly Father. So the right to call him father in relationship is reserved only for his children. It's reserved for only those, by the way, he chose in eternity past. And I think that, you know, again, we need to keep this before us. This verse right here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So blessed is the Father of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about God the Father. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now watch this, just as he, and who chose us, by the way? Who chose you in eternity past? Who is Paul talking about? Did the Son choose you? Did the Spirit choose you? Or did the Father choose you? The Father chose you. Just as he chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, when was the foundation of the world created? Genesis chapter 1, right? So you were chosen when? Before that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Let me say that again. What was the motive for God choosing you? Love. And he predestined us to adoption. He adopted us as sons and daughters through his son, Jesus Christ, to himself. The father himself chose you to be his son or daughter. He did that personally. And it's according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, I don't know. I really can't answer the question, what is included in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Does anybody know the answer to that question? Because I don't. But whatever it includes, it certainly includes God the Father personally predestinating us to adoption to himself. Now that tells me that God wants a what? Family, right? He wants a family. Family is a priority. And by the way, anytime you see the world doing opposite of what God desires, i.e. tears down and redefines the family, you know that, okay, the opposite is probably true of God. And that's the case, yes. God the Father wants a family. Now, the implications of this loving act from God the Father, they're just tremendous because it says nothing of the fact that this means their lives are not an accident. I mean, our lives are not an accident of a, some, a product of some random chance event. Our lives have meaning and purpose and security and hope and fellowship and provision. Why? Because he chose us before the world was created to be his sons and daughters. Amen. A father chose you. You did not descend from an ape, okay? You were not some random chance mistake over billions and billions of years. Now, this also means that all of God's resources, all of, of our resources, Eric and I, are reserved for who? In our case, our children. All of his resources are reserved for who? His children that he adopted. I grew up in a family where every one of my siblings was adopted, except me. We adopted our son Jacob. Some of you have been adopted or have adopted children. And it's only the adopted sons and daughters that can claim the right to be called a son or daughter of God and thus receive all of the, the love and the resources God has at his disposal. In other words, membership has its privileges. You have benefits being a child of God. Not because of anything you've done, but because God in love chose you to be his son or daughter. And that's just a sampling of this one word, are. And so we can... Glance over these words, but you are special because God chose you. Now, you have a prayer like this, our Father in heaven. Mark loves using this word, the word pater, P-A-T-E-R. That's the paternity of prayer. 
The word pater in Greek is the word father. It's also, Jesus didn't speak in Greek, he spoke in Aramaic. And of course, the word he used here, he uses the word father in the Aramaic is what? Abba, which means what? Daddy. So it's a, a term of endearment used by a little child for its father. In fact, the Talmud says that the first thing a Jew ever learned to say was the word Abba. Now, the Im, this implies several characteristics. Father in heaven for us. Number one, it means this. Intimacy. Not only did God choose you before everything was created. It says this in Psalm 1393, you scrutinize my path in my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. He formed you, he knitted you, he knows everything about you. The guillemot is a small Arctic seabird that lives on the rocky cliffs of northern coastal regions. These birds flock together by the thousands in comparatively small areas. And because of the crowded conditions, hundreds of these females, uh, they lay their pear-shaped eggs side by side in a long road and narrow bridge. You can look it up. You can see pictures of this. And since the eggs all look alike, it's incredible that a mother bird can identify those that belong to her. Yet studies show that somehow she knows her eggs. So while even that when one is moved, she finds it and returns it to its original location. She is never confused. So she intimately, somehow, this bird knows the eggs that are, can be laying in a row, and there's another bird, female bird laying their eggs, another bird laying their eggs, and if one of them gets moved, she knows which one is hers. And that's, I think, a nice picture of our Heavenly Father. Because there's a closeness to God that a Jew never could imagine. God no longer dwells in an ark behind a curtain that only the high priest visits briefly once a year. What happened to that curtain? It was torn in two, and so God, in all his fullness, when I say all his fullness, we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, chooses to dwell now where? Within us. You are being built into a dwelling place or a habitation for God. And that's an incredible thought. So when you hear the word, our Father in heaven... It's intimacy. It also implies that God is very caring. Remember this? Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He cares for you. He wants what is best for you. He wants to provide for you. He's in your corner. He's cheering you on. So he's a loving heavenly father. There's intimacy. He's, he's caring. Remember the phrase, according to the kind intention of his will, he's very kind and caring. That is who God is. And it stems from his nature. And by nature, God is what? Love. It also means, our Father in heaven, that we have infinite resources available to us. And we forget this, and shame on us. We have infinite resources here on earth. Psalm 24, 1. 
The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. Now, I think that in the busyness and distractions of this world, we lose sight of this truth. Yes, I think we know the truth of Psalm 24.1, but in our minds, it is often not applied to our daily existence. Because our lives, and if I were to ask this question, I know how you'd all would answer it, because I've asked it before, they are too often characterized by anxiety and doubt regarding our possessions. I mentioned last week that we went to, to Mount Vernon, Washington for the annual tulip festival. Here's a picture of those tulips, okay? As best we can see, I don't know if you can turn the lights down up here, but when we were looking at these tulips, of course, this verse was brought to our minds. It says, consider the lilies, how they grow. And there they are, folks. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. That was the natural thought of Eric and I looking at this. This is they're so beautiful. There's no way that we could ever dress as nice as these look. Amen. Now, but if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, and those in a month they'll be gone. Right? There are already other flowers there that were had wilted and were and were we're gone. But how, how much more will I clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows what you need these things. So if you need shelter, guess what? Does God have it at his disposal? Does anybody in here need shelter? If you do, raise your hand. You already have a place to live, right? He's provided it for you. Some of you need a place to move, but God has it at his disposal. You need food, it's at God's disposal. You, he owns cattle on a thousand hills. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we still have food, don't we? Do you need clothing? It's at God's disposal. Again, he dresses the flowers of the field, and he will most certainly dress his children whom he values far more than others. How many of us have more clothes than we need? Yep. So that's just our Father on earth. How about our Father in heaven? Well, he has all the supernatural domain in his disposal. Again, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which means What? All that heaven is, is available to who? Understand that? All that heaven is, is available to us, his children. Again, membership has its benefits. He is a loving heavenly father who has all the resources of heaven. Do you want satisfaction? Yeah, God has it. At his disposal. Do you want fairness? Sure we do. Because life isn't fair. God has it in the heavenlies. You want peace? God has it readily available. Do you want unconditional love? You find it in all its fullness in heaven. Do you want happiness? It's available in unlimited supply with him in heaven. See, it's all there. And we pray to a father who has absolutely eternal resources available to him. 
I'm going to share with you a story about, actually, two of these. This house right here. This is 325 North Prospect Street in Bowling Green, Ohio. And I think in 2001, we purchased this house. Now, here's the thing. You have to stay with me on this. Behind this house was a busy road, one of the main roads. And down about three, 400, 500 yards were a lot of bars. This road right here extended all the way up and eventually dead end about a quarter mile up onto the campus of Bowling Green State University. That's the sole reason why we moved from our house at a different location in Bowling Green to here. When I started this campus ministry called 519 Ministries, the campus ministry of Bowling Green Covenant Church, in our old location, within a year we had 20 to 30 students coming to our basement, which was, wasn't big enough for our, our ministry. And through a series of circumstances, we discovered that this house was available by a, a former believer or former attender of our church. We began looking at this. Now, this is a, an American four-square house, okay, built in 1897, I believe. Um, I won't have time to take you through it all, but I mean, there was a basement that we had the laundry room in and so on, and, and you know, the furnace and stuff were down there. But this is you know, three stories. We finished off this top, top story. This part right here was 3,000 square feet alone. So you had the top here, it was about a 4,000 square foot home. Now you ready for this? On that property, which went back and on back around on a corner street, $180,000. Right? And we purchased it back in 2001. Here's the story of how God provided this. You know, we had had at that point in time Mark and David, I believe, Jacob and Mark, yeah, and you were pregnant with David, and we saw this house, and we took a tour of this house, and I will never forget this till the day I die. We're walking through this house, and it had been, by the way, completely restored, inside and outside, and so the type of construction that they don't do today because it's too expensive, heavy doors, wood floors, I mean, you name it, and it had been completely thick kerosene carpet throughout that is probably still there and you can't tell. We're walking through this house and Erica pulls me aside and she looks at me and I was just stunned and she says this, I want this house, you get me this house. (laughs) They're all right. Now, on a, a missionary salary, you know, we didn't have any money. So how was I going to get this? Well, we, at this point in time in the market in, in Bowling Green, Ohio, we made what was called a contingent offer. We will buy this house contingent upon the sale of our house. But there was another offer that was competing, and so we had to basically make that contingent offer, but also basically willing to risk two house payments. When we made that decision, and I made the decision because I felt like you know, this is what she wanted, and we were moving here for one reason and one reason only, for ministry purposes, because this was a war zone, we called it. Um, this front porch here, you can see the swing and other things. People had houses like this on this road and around this area would bolt down their, their lawn furniture or their, their front porch furniture because the college students in their drunkenness would steal it. You can see this right here. This was screwed into the side of the house. Well, a college student decided they wanted it one night and they brought a screwdriver and unscrewed it and took it off our front porch. 
But they would walk down there, and we would, you know, minister to these kids, and the students could walk from the campus to our house for Bible studies and, and whatnot. So we purchased it for ministry reasons. While I made that decision to risk two house payments, the realtor called the owners. We didn't know that they were believers. They had been praying that their house would be used for campus ministry. We had no idea of that. Now, God provided for us because our house sold within a month. We didn't have two house payments. We really couldn't afford it. But by faith, we took a step towards God, and God provided. He has infinite resources available to provide for his children. Now, there is this again, infinite resources, but our Father in heaven also means giving because God's the first and foremost giver. Think about this. Who gave you physical life? He did. He gives you spiritual life. He gives you peace. He gives you victory through Christ. He gives wisdom. He gives grace. He gives you an inheritance. He gives the Holy Spirit. Now, the greatest of all those gifts I just mentioned, the, the peace, the wisdom, and the Holy Spirit, by far the easiest and the best gift is the Holy Spirit. Well, why do I say that? Well, let me ask you this. Do you need help? Do you need comfort? Do you need guidance? Do you need companionship? And do you want to know what is to come in your life? This was all the things that Jesus offered to the original 12 disciples while he was physically present with them on earth. And this is what the Holy Spirit does and will be to us. In fact, of all the gifts I just mentioned, the physical life, spiritual life, peace, victory through Christ, wisdom, grace, inheritance, who gives this to us? It comes through who? The Holy Spirit. Well, why? Because this is what a loving Father does. He gives. It's interesting how we can be so selfish, and yet when we become parents and have children, the almost immediate response is we want to give the best life for our child. We want to then give. You've experienced that before as a father or mother? Well, that's a, that comes from God because that's who he is. That's the nature of love. But what I really want to focus on this morning is this whole idea of God being good. Zechariah 9.17 says this, For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. And I think it's very, very important that we always remember this. Because I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And while you're flipping to your Bible, let me just say this to you. You're going to see that you can argue that all, that the fall of mankind was due to a lie that questioned the goodness of God. Twelve times Moses uses the word good in the first two chapters of Genesis, describing God's creation. Well, what do you think Moses' point in using the word good so many times. 
If I want to get a point across, I keep repeating it over and over and over again because I want you to get this point. In this case, he's trying to remind us and show us and teach us that God is what? Good. So let's look at what Satan attacks in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you should not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So deceived by a lie, Eve begins focusing on what? What she does not have. See that? And in doing so, Satan distracts Eve from what? All that she does have. Every tree available to her except one. And that's the power of a lie. And what he did is Satan brings into question the generosity and the goodness of God. You see that? Now this is exactly what we do when life doesn't turn out as we have planned. I mean, as long as we get what we want, we think God is what? He is good. But when we don't get our way, we immediately question his goodness. I'm going to look at a passage in Jeremiah that highlights God's concern about goodness. So turn to Isaiah chapter 32. Look at verses 36 through 42. It's in the middle of the back of your Bible. And while you're going there, let me give you some, some background. The people of Israel have broken the covenant with God they agreed to in Deuteronomy. And in fact, that covenant stated that if you worship God, if you worship me and obey my commands, God says, I'm going to bless you. But if you turn from me and worship other gods and disobey my com commands, I will bring upon you curses. And so in Jeremiah 32, verses 36 through 42, Jeremiah 32. Did I say Isaiah? Well, you're supposed to know it anyway, so anyways. <laughs> Jeremiah 32, 36 through 42. I guess, David, that's the effect of jet lag. Now, the people failed to live up to their part of the covenant agreement with God. And so what he did is he enacted the consequences of, they were listed in this agreement that was ratified in Deuteronomy. And namely, it meant this, that judgment would come in the form of sword, famine, and pestilence. Now, is everybody there? What I want you to read now is, read this passage, these seven verses, and tell me if God isn't concerned about goodness. I mean, if some of you don't think it's on his mind. Look at verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Again, that was the, the agreement they entered into. The covenant with God on Mount Sinai, remember the lightning and the fire and the earthquake and so on in the book of Deuteronomy. 
Verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their what? Own good and the good of their children after them. So in other words, the ability to receive goodness comes from God. He will change their nature so that they will fear him, thus they can experience his goodness. I will make them an verse 40, I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. See that? And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Now look at verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. So he rejoices in doing good to his children. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so bring upon them all the good that I promised them. God is good. Just because your circumstances change, you don't get your way, doesn't change this fact. He's a good father. And we doubt that when life gets hard. And I think the reason why we do that, at least in, in America, is because we have a, a sense of entitlement, a way of, and a quality of life that we expect. Number six, you have a loving Heavenly Father. I told you by his very nature, he is love, so his actions are motivated by love. He is also omniscient. Does your father know what you need before you ask him? Yes, he does. We're going to go back one more story from this house. Okay? But before I tell this story, I want to share with you a few verses. Three verses. Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. So who controlled the wind? God. Verse Psalm 78, 26. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. So the east and south winds are directed by who? God. Mark 4, 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Who controls the wind? You got that picture there? Okay. Now you'll notice... This tree right here, okay, that is a water maple, okay? It's, anyways, you'll, different names, it's, it can be called a water maple and so on. The reason why is that you'll notice that right here, it kind of stops. See that? It used to go over here above the house. You can see that it's no longer there. Bowling Green, Ohio is in the northwest Ohio, and it's farm country, and it's flat, okay? It, was, it did not get nearly the amount of snow that northeast Ohio got because the winds would blow down from Canada over Lake Erie and create that Lake Erie snow effect, and you get feet of snow. But what you got is wind, and it would be bitterly cold in the winter at times. 
Wind chills 20, 30, 40 below every winter. Now, I was up in this attic where it was our office and work area and we had Bible studies. And there's four dormers. I was over here where my office was looking out this way and I could see this tree. And one day in the spring, I think it was of 2002 or 2003, it was 2003, you could back in those days through the weather channel and through the local weather, they could predict the exact speed and time that heavy windstorms would come through your area. And there was this windstorm with gusts of up to 70 miles an hour coming, and I could watch it come on radar. And I am upstairs, and the time it comes, and, it, and they had it down to a science into the, the exact second. This wind came, and it, do you remember this? It shook, as you would imagine, this house. I am up there feeling this, and I'm not concerned about my safety or my family's safety. I'm thinking, am I still going to be connected to the internet, and are we going to lose power? So I'm in this dormer, I'm looking outside, and I hear, feel the house shaking, and I see this branch start to move towards here. Then I hear it tear, and I am watching it come off. Now, this is the omniscience of God and the sovereignty of God. The owners prior to us didn't want to take down this tree, because you can look at the size of this tree and see how close it is here, and there is a house right here and here. If it went this way or this way, what's going to happen to those homes? It crashed. But instead of tearing this tree down, they had an arborist come, and he climbed up there, and he attached cables. There's three or four cables, I think, up in that tree, holding it together in hopes of saving the tree. When the wind came, it blew that branch off, and that's a huge branch because it went all the way over here. The cable held for a while. It swung around, and then it, the cable broke, and it fell down, and it just grazed this area right here, and it was down here and into the road and over into the sidewalk. <laughs> of course, I'm thinking, hey, I didn't lose power, and I'm still connected, <laughs> right? Now... How in the world did, was there almost no damage to our house? Because an omniscient God put a cable in that tree, and he directed the wind, right, to blow that branch off and down. But it's not just that. The story goes on. Right around 2003, do you remember the George Bush tax cuts and child tax credit? Do you remember that? Well, if you have children, you, you would got a, a refund check in addition to your normal tax refund if you got one. And it was either $1,000 or $2,000. When this branch came down, as you can see, there is, and this is true in every city, there's the road, and who's responsible for the road? Well, in this case, the city of Bowling Green. Who is really responsible for this, this easement right there? I'll mow it, but the city is really responsible for that. Even the sidewalk. Who's responsible for everything in here? The owner. Where is this tree? Is it on my property or the city? 
our property. And when it blowed, that branch came down, the city came to us and said that we had to take that tree down. And the cost of that, I'm, I'm going to say it was 2000 it was like $2,100. Guess how much that Bush tax, child tax credit, whatever it was, was $2,000. Now, God knew that he was going to direct that wind. He knew that that cable would hold, and he knew that tree had to come down. I had no idea. We didn't have $2,000 for that tree. God knew that. And that's what he gave us. And we love spending that $2,000 taking a tree down, of course, right? But that is an omniscient, loving, providing God and Father. And I know that you all have stories like that. So I want to talk to you about, and we'll close with this, what I call the Heavenly Father effect. Remember I said this, that fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it's because dads matter. Remember this, in Fatherly of May 2018, children of involved fathers are less likely to drop out of school, engage in risky sexual behaviors, break the law, are more likely to have high IQ scores, pursue healthy relationships, and hold down high-paying jobs. So I expect my kids to have high-paying jobs and support me in my retirement. I'm on record for that, all right? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond that, several studies have investigated how a dad's specific decisions or parenting styles can influence his children. The way kids speak and hear. Studies have shown that the lower decibel level of a father's voice signals a child's brain that they are dealing with someone capable of protecting them. This is funny because I took my dad to a, his, an audiologist appointment or a hearing appointment on Tuesday and he was tested, and he could hear low sounds fine, but the higher pitch sounds in female voices, he could not dis- hear that well. And of course, you know, there's background noise he didn't hear as well. So my dad and I were both distraught and sad because he could legitimately say to his wife and his daughter, I can't really hear you, and I would love to be able to say that to my wife. <laughs> what, did you say something? I can't hear you. He had a built-in excuse. And now that excuse will be gone in about six weeks when he gets his hearing aid. And he's depressed about that, as he should be. But dads influence their children's social identities, media consumption habits, attitudes, and friendships. And from a spiritual perspective, an earthly father, the studies reveal that if the religious practice of the father of the family It's that, above all, that determines the future attendance or absence from church of the children. So one study reports this, that if both father and mother attend regularly, then 33% of their children, or a third, will end up as regular churchgoers. But if the father is irregular and the mother is regular, this is stunning, only 3% of the children will subsequently become regulars themselves. Now, if the father is non-practicing and the mother is a regular, only 2% of the children attend church regularly. But what happens if the father is a regular attender and the mother is a regular or non-practicing at all? Here's what is amazing. The percentage of children becoming regular, it goes up from 33% to 38%. 
with the irregular mother, and if it's an absent mother, it goes up to 44%. I mean, the power of a father is amazing. So in short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. And if a father does not go, or does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. Now, the point is this. As our earthly fathers have a great effect upon us, so does a heavenly father. So what effect does the Heavenly Father have upon us? Well, I think that it, because we have a loving Heavenly Father, it puts to rest these issues. Number one is that is anxiety and fear. You know, everybody needs to hear this and be awake and write this down and etch this in your memory because everyone struggles with anxiety and fear. It's not necessary. He offers you a worry-free life. Again, I just read it to you. Don't be worried about your life, what you will eat or drink, what you will wear. God knows what you need, and he will provide it for you. Think of the lilies of the field. He has also provided grace, so you don't have to fear coming into his presence. We can draw near to our, our loving Heavenly Father with confidence to the throne of grace, so we can find the mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You have hope. And we just don't get this. But we have hope. In fact, it's not just hope, it's a living hope. Through his son, we have a future glory. What awaits us is riches. And he, Paul wants us to remember this which is why Paul would pray regularly, and I pray this regularly for you and for me and for my family, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you what? A spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, you would know that you have a hope and you would live your life with the idea that you have hope, which is why I say to you, I could go home right now. I would leave this place like that because I know where I'm going and I know what I'm getting. And I am poor in this world compared to the next. So I don't cling to this life. I love my children, but I'd rather go home. I love you, Erica, but I'd rather go home. I have that hope. Yet we live life as if the best we are ever going to experience is now. And we don't live with an eternal perspective. For Paul to make that part of his regular prayers, he is reminding himself of the future, his hope and the riches, the inheritance that Christ earned for us, that awaits him. There is provision he knows what you need before you ask him. And he has unlimited earthly and heavenly resources to meet your needs and desires. So put to, to rest anxiety and fear, put to rest the idea of hope, you have it all. Provision, it's, it's taken care of. You don't have to be lonely, folks. The global pandemic has deepened 
our epidemic of loneliness in America. There's a new report that just came out about a month ago. 36% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. Well, why would we feel loneliness? Well, we do, but why? If you think about it, has he not promised to be with you always? Has he not said to you, Lord, I'm with you always? Has he not said to you, I will never leave you? I will never forsake you? You are never alone. And do you want to know why a lot many people feel loneliness? Is they do not practice the spirit, Christians, that is, feel loneliness. They, they do not practice the, the spiritual discipline of awareness. They bring God along with them wherever they are. He's already there. You just need a conscious awareness of it. Because you are never alone. So let's put to rest the idea of loneliness. You don't have that. And you have wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask him, he said, and I will answer. And I want to just kind of make this a little bit more relevant to us. This is from a, a, a February 23rd Time Magazine article, and you get a kick out of this, I think. In June 2020, the Minneapolis City Council approved, announced plans to disband its police department following the killing of George Floyd. The council's decisions came after days of protesting and unrest in the city, we know of this, and across the country, um, and related to Floyd's death and calls for larger scale accountability from law enforcement. And of course, you remember what happened. They wanted to defund the police, and that became the, the, the code word or the, the lightning phrase. But eight months later, in the city of Minneapolis, the calls to defund the police, to get rid of the police, and so on, they're still there. They've not been dissolved. Though a lot has happened, he says, in the interim. Minneapolis' struggle to implement meaningful reforms serves as a microcosm how the defund the police movement has impacted the country. Now listen to this. The council members who initially supported the idea have, guess what, walked back their positions. And in August, and this is back in June of 2020, not August of this year, the city charter delayed the council's proposal to disband the police pending further review. And in November, they flat out reject that, that proposal. Well, why the change of heart? Here's where wisdom plays a part in this, and you know what I'm going to say, but guess what? 2020 ended as one of the most violent years in the U.S. in decades. A direct correlation between calls for defunding the police and a rise in crime. And what I found so hilarious is that in searching this on the internet, there was another article that said a rise in crime follows a defund the police movement. Here it is, experts say. So let me get this straight, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because my wife would say I'm a little slow. You get rid of police, crime will rise. Now, we saw that in Seattle, right? The, the chop and the chaz and all that. And I need an expert to tell me that. You know what that means, folks? If that's the criteria for an expert, you and I should feel really good about ourselves because we all are experts because we all knew that that was going to happen. Amen. 
But see, this is what the world does. They make unwise decisions. And now, now that example of an unwise decision, it goes beyond stupidity. It was simply foolish and it was arrogant. It was driven by an agenda. Now here's my point. Wise decisions should be the trademark of a child of God. Why do you say that, Pastor? What simply is this? God, who is the source of all wisdom, offers his wisdom to you. You simply have to ask him. That's James 1.5, okay? Well, let's say that, unfortunately, you don't really know how to discern when God is leading or speaking to you. So that verse really doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Well, he's provided another source of wisdom. Proverbs 11.14 says this, where there is no guidance, the people fall, i.e., defund the police movement. Watch this. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So in other words, counselors or elders are the older people that have life experience and wisdom. You can go to people who are older and wiser than you and ask their opinion and get wisdom because God's provided wisdom in the body of Christ. And they can guide you and help you make a wise decision. So there's no excuse, people, for you to make stupid, unwise decisions. You're not alone. You have God there, and you have the body of Christ. So wisdom, it should be our trademark, right? So I don't want any more stupid decisions, all right? You guys can't do that anymore. Number six, you have security. I mean, God is our refuge, a strong tower, our protector. Remember, he is our NORAD. Remember I told you about that? You go into NORAD deep down in there, and if a, a nuclear bomb would be dropped in the area, it would be just like that down in there. I mean, that's the way God is. He is a protector, a refuge, a strong tower. And so, really simply, what I want you to do this morning is, this week is meditate on these attributes of your Heavenly Father as you're praying. Remember, this is who He is. Our Father in Heaven. And that should be an encouragement for us to pray. Let me just close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, it is a privilege and an honor to come before you It is good to be here this morning. We want to lift you up and we want to worship you and we want to be intimate with you. We thank you that you have made it easy for us to approach you. You have given us everything that we could ever want or imagine. And we thank you that for just for who you are and that we can boldly come before you. And I pray that we would spend a special time with you this week and we would just be really grateful that you are our Heavenly Father. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Enjoy your overcast day. God bless you.